All right, well, I think maybe we're in a podcast now. Yeah, I think we're in a low energy podcast. <laughs> yeah, like the thing about Vancouver is that as soon as the sun comes out, everyone's like, oh my God, we need to go outside like right now. But we've been inside all winter. And so we go outside and we're like, oh my God, my legs. <laughs> <laughs> Not used to moving. What has happened? Ah. I always remember one of the comics you made, Jam, about the sun coming out and just everyone in Vancouver like immediately just like jamming themselves into every patio and yeah. just running to the beach and just like I was like yeah yeah there's some Do truth be like to this that, though. yeah <laughs> so I've been I, I call it sun madness where like you you are just compelled to go do these things because there's so much darkness and so much rain involved in living here that like you don't you don't really have a choice or if you do manage to resist it you just spend the whole time feeling like extremely guilty (laughs) i should be outside right now i know i sympathize i yeah yesterday the sun came out and i was just like well I know I need to get groceries, but I think I'm going to go just lie under a tree for like an hour before I do that. (laughs) That is an excellent use of time. Golden weathers in Vancouver, golden age. It's <laughs> a great segue, Jeff. <laughs> but that we're what eighty-six episodes in, we're we're getting pretty good at the non sequitur segues. <laughs> the important podcasting skill. I was gonna say I've heard I've heard podcasts with worse uh, segues, so <laughs> I think we're doing okay. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a special guest today. We have Hannah Myers returning to read Golden Age with us. Yay. Hello, everyone. Yay. Thanks for having me. I'm putting up with uh, my book choice. Putting oh, up I... with? Uh, well, okay. Maybe that's just my attitude based off of the second install. <laughs> no. no, it's fine. It's fine. It was a good. It was good. <laughs> we will discuss yes we will discuss. yeah um yeah i guess we already did part one so this is going to be the follow-up so we figure find out the ending of this or we talk about the ending of this story um, yeah, two of two which i appreciate so i uh-huh. mean yeah it's rare i don't know it's it's hard to find a graphic novel one shot and a graphic novel two shot i think is also highly unusual and i appreciate yeah. it because it's like we, nope. can, we can have the resolution and that's that's really satisfying and this came out like pretty quick i don't know i guess because maybe we didn't wait for golden age one it seemed pretty quick. yeah golden age one had been out for a while okay. um so it did ha- just so happen that the second one was coming out right around the time that we recorded the first one so yeah i, f- I feel like in graphic novels a lot of times you're either going one graphic novel like one and done or you're going three or you're going like manga, just like forever. Never ending. Never <laughs> yeah. Ending. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Two's a good number though. I like two. You get like a, a sizable chunk of story without uh, a huge commitment of time or money. 
Yeah. Great. Yeah. And then you still get the like the hook, like your the the last book ends on like a cliffhanger, and then you get so you're so excited for the second one, you've got something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to put up with cliffhangers like five times in a row. <laughs> I, have, I like yeah. a cliffhanger though. That's fun. I have yeah. I have I have some more to say about the yeah the formatting or the ending. But uh, do we need? Should we maybe do some? introductions character building questions or are we just jumping in no we must follow the format or <laughs> that's it we need to hang up our license <laughs> <laughs> the format we came up with on the spot like on our first episode it's mandatory now yeah. <laughs> well i have a character building question and it's kind of a weird one so bear with me if you could give yourself one like biopunk or nature inspired implant a la Aeon Flux, what would it be and why? Oh, this is a fantastic and timely question in terms of what I've been thinking about. Ooh, give me a moment. <laughs> yeah, take your time because I was I was like, I've got one that I think is kind of cool, but um then I was like, what on earth would everyone anyone everyone else pick? And then I was like, well that's up to them, Hannah. They <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. I think I know. I think I know. I can start with mine if you guys want a bit of extra time to think. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. So I would want like spider web implants. So like I would want to be able to like get like spider web silk out of my body, like just on command. Then I could like, I could knit with it. I could, I could make a rope if I needed a rope. I could like tie, make a little like grocery bag if I forgot a grocery bag. I, I was thinking for Good. a bit, love like, it, a, yeah, like fish fins or something to help me swim. But I'm like, I don't swim that often, honestly. I think the the spider web would be quite practical. I mean, and you not, could instead I was of say not like Spider Man. I'm oh, thinking see. just like being able to pull it out and use it like for functional things. See, I was just going to say, like, instead of driving a car, you could swing yeah. over the tops of the city. I'm afraid uh, of heights. I'm afraid you don't have of enough heights. Tall buildings. Would not work. In the- <laughs> there's like a few city blocks you could do that in. I was going to say, and that's it. In the city of Vancouver, I'm sure that's very practical to swing <laughs> off of ropes to get places. But it is very practical <laughs> to be able to construct your own bag. Yes. Yeah. It's getting like more and more difficult to, to not bring. <laughs> yeah, that's bag. true. You could even probably whip up a like a, a travel mug on the go. Just like hair tie. Cup. You got a hair tie. Oh my God. <laughs> like instantly. Like it's just, and it would be organic and potentially compostable. This is next anyway, level. I love it. That's my, that was my big exciting idea. <laughs> I mean, I'm Jeff Ellis and I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I see, I'm at an age now where I'm just like, oh man, like, could I just get some like 24 year old knees, and, like <laughs> a 24 year old lower back? Like that'd be pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that um, would but, be possible. But no, I, you know what? Like I've been, I've been, I've been getting into swimming. I've been swimming laps, uh, at least twice a week, uh, maybe three times a week. And, uh, you know, maybe some like retractable, like webbed digits, you know, like you can just get like webbed, webbed fingers and webbed toes or like, man, maybe even some, 
let's go if we're gonna go really deluxe get the get the gills so you just don't even have to like come nice. up for air mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that'd be pretty cool i'd be down for that okay mine's a little left field so i'm jam uh but it's gonna make sense in context of my life and i think uh the thing that jumped to mind for me the enhancement that i would want would be like a, a hyena stomach like an iron, basically like an iron stomach because uh, anyone who knows me knows that my stomach is garbage. It's a disaster. I can't eat anything. And I'm just sick all the time for like things. That, yeah. Like I, I, I didn't eat on time <laughs> or I ate slightly too fast or slightly too late or things, something was slightly too sweet. And uh, of course I have like a whole heap of allergies on top of that. So if I could just eat anything even like marginally acceptable like marginal food let's say I think that would be awesome and then I wouldn't even have to think about it I'd be like ah just eating this can like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine it's cool I can subsist on anything come at me <laughs> uh, I'm JD and I think the the thing that would most improve my quality of life is I need more time somehow so I think the strategy I would want for that is to have dolphin brain where I can Ooh. like have half of my brain sleep at a time and then the other half sleep so that I never actually have to be asleep. Uh, and I assume that like what I would be able to do while half my brain is asleep is like maybe limited, but like, I, I think I could accomplish a lot. I could like get my house clean. I could like do some inking. I could, um, like get some marking done, maybe depending on which half of my brain it is. So like, well I, I would like, like all that time back, please. Add a second set of arms in there too, and then you can, you know, do no, do more things time. at once. No, time just the time. I don't need extra arms. I just need more time. I, I feel like I, we would start getting like three a.m. emails from JD, and <laughs> I'd have to be like, oh, this is a little weird. This email this is probably from Halfwit JD right now. Yeah. Oh, brain JD. Dolphin brain JD. Oh, it's, it's right half JD. Uh, I hate I hate dealing with that guy. You know what, though? You wouldn't have to wait a week for an email reply. <laughs> so it would be quick, but confusing. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> Great question. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's talk about Golden Age. Yeah. I mean, we already talked a little bit about it being like a two-part uh, versus a three-part or something, but I will say that the last note that I put in here when I was talking or doing my notes for this book was I did write, uh, this could have been one volume interesting um, like a like a, a thick thick boy yeah i mm. i personally feel like for what i got out of this like i would have just rather bought one big fat book rather than have to have waited and that's i don't know i don't know if it was i i don't know what's the decision making and the publishing end of things but i i personally felt like this would have been good as just like one one self-contained book i don't know what you guys think of that Interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I think for me, it, it's funny because this is not historical fiction. It's like historic-esque fantasy maybe where it feels historical, but it's not actually historical. Mm. But anyway, the problem that I had with the beginning of the book is that it, it felt like it started kind of slow because I personally 
like the thing that I can't stand about historical fiction is like military strategy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I felt the first half of this second volume was very military strategy heavy, let's say. And I was like, okay, uh, beautifully illustrated horses, but uh, not for me. Uh, yeah, I feel like there, I didn't get nearly as much story out of the second volume as the first volume. I reread the first volume first, just to sort of re- refresh my memory of like what had happened. And the first volume is a lot denser. There's a lot more that happens. We've learned more about the characters and this volume like ties up a couple of threads, but then there's other threads that just kind of like, let's go. We never find anything yeah. else about the, uh, the women living in the forest there's like one line where we find out oh they they all kind of fell apart the community didn't last we don't get to see that though Um, it's true it's true we spent like a lot more time with the queen and like the focus was very much there yeah yeah and she's not the most interesting character for most of this book like she has an arc at the end where like we get like a conclusion for her but for the first half she's just like this single-minded uh like war focused like death and bloodshed and that's just not interesting yeah i guess to like catch up on the plot what happened at the last of the last sorry but what happened at the end of the last volume is that they got to this treasure that everyone was looking for and it was this this book inside this glowy box right and so she got this glowy box and was like i need to take over the kingdom from my brother because of this glowy box and like the glowy box was I, i'm sure it has a more precise name uh <laughs> was driving her to madness basically like yeah as as jd said like single single-minded determination on this goal despite all obstacles and heavy military losses yeah i i think i agree with you jeff that um although we did spend the first half of the podcast praising the two volume book and how exciting it is to have a cliffhanger ending um i was like i had a lot of high expectations for this volume and i guess because of um like as you guys mentioned there being some loose ends that weren't really tied up very well and it just kind of I was kind of waiting for something really big and exciting. And um, there were parts that I thought were exciting, um, but it just I, it just kind of ended. And I was like, oh, this, I'm, it, it has sort of like a, like a fable, a fable-y kind of, like it's trying to teach you a lesson and like, that's fine. But that's not what I was hoping for, I guess. I was kind of hoping for something a little bit more fantastical out of my historic fantasy, you know, then, I mean, yeah. So that's that. That's sort of my feeling. And I, I probably would have been a little less disappointed if I hadn't been waiting for a second volume <laughs> and, you know, had that excitement and like, oh man, the first one was so good. I can't wait for the second. If I had just read it all in one go, then I would have been probably a bit more satisfied with it. That's interesting. Yeah, I see what you mean. And I also want to pick up on what JD said, which is there were a lot of characters that were established in the first one. And we didn't get a lot of that character moment. So like, I kind of agree with you, like the, we can talk about the ending, but yeah, it was a little bit fably and less fantastic. But I feel like personally, like if there had been more meaty character resolutions, that also would have been more satisfying to me. 
Whereas we see kind of like uh, cameos, basically, of the characters that were established in the first one. And like the the first book had some really, really interesting characters that, yeah, like like you all, I was excited to see like, oh, man, what are we going to hear about the women in the forest? This guy, who, uh, you know, he's, he's stirring up this u- uprising, this this young squire who decides to defect to the side of the, the revolution. You know, there's a lot of really interesting characters and even the antagonists, like we don't see that much of the prince. And he's like, oh, no, my castle is being stolen. And the vizier is like, uh, do something about it. And uh, even even those characters aren't really treated in a very interesting way, I found. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, we really still don't know anything about the, the prince. Can't even remember his name. Uh, and like uh, Bertel, I thought I feel like it was a huge missed opportunity. There's one scene where he and... Um, Lord Tancred talk again after they they're sort of they've diverged on different paths, and I really like that scene. But like that's all we get. So like uh, I, I like their arcs. Like in the first volume, they're sort of like on the same page. Like uh, Lord Tancred has basically raised Bertel, and there's sort of this um their philosophy for both of them is this sort of like measured reforms is what they call it. Like they the kingdom has problems, but we can solve them. Uh, and from there, they kind of go in different directions where Bertel joins this revolution. And then in this volume, he's like very adamantly like no negotiation. We can't, we don't even want to talk to monarchs. Like why, what are we doing? This needs to be like a full reset of society. And Lord Tancred is kind of just sort of like trying to like, he, he sides with the queen and then he's like trying to redirect the queen and like uh it's it's i really liked that their uh their motivations were so different even though they started out in such a similar spot and like that was really interesting i want more like that where it's like the character is trying to figure out their way through this world and we we really don't get very much of that yeah there was some like there was a few like key like character moments in this volume that mm-hmm. i enjoyed and i don't know it like especially a lot a lot of the stuff with little paul because at the very beginning they have the you know i guess as a similar framing narrative to volume one you have the kind of lower classes now guarding the wall and little paul is is scared and like they try to console and it was very sweet it was like a very sweet moment and but then, yeah, you just get into a lot of this war stuff. And then I actually found like when little Paul and the queen interact, that also had a little bit more, I don't know, impact to it. Uh, maybe because it was this sort of bringing together of like the queen and this like lower cast character and like the way they interact. But I think the other big thing for me, it, flipping through this again, is just like the time jump because at the end of volume one, there's this cliffhanger where they've opened the chest and there's this big magical explosion and everyone seems to have, be laid out on the ground, possibly dead. And then this volume starts with like, like uh, someone going to the, like um, we're Bertel going to the castle or no, they have a ship. They have a ship. And then we're like, Bertel's going to the castle and then we're in the middle of a war. And it's just like, sorry, what happened? What happened with the magic box? Like, it's just like it, it kind of jumps ahead and like her brother's older and it's just like a lot of stuff happened between volumes one and two and i don't know i don't know if it earned that time jump like they're just like 
yeah, okay, a bunch of shit happened. We don't have time to deal with that. So now we're here. And it's like, I don't know, did you, is that expediency or did you just really not know how to get from A to B? So you just like insert a, a time jump to sort of move the plot forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Did we read volume three? Was, uh, <laughs> was volume two missing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to go back to what you said with little, little Wee Paul. What was his name? Little, little Paul, Paul, yeah. I thought that was a really, really satisfying resolution. Like that yeah. was the one character arc that I really, really enjoyed from this book. That like little Paul who, like you mentioned, is treated so sweetly by everyone he knows. He's like, look, he's just, he's intellectually disabled. This is just the way it is. And we can't truly explain to him what's going on and what he needs to do we need to you know explain things to him simply he he deserves to be protected you know like i i really like that aspect about him and then he winds up uh in the chamber of the queen and even the queen you know treats him with respect and very uh sweetly and he ends up being the key you know he ends up Hmm. being the one who can read the tome the magical tome and uh create the words that heal the queen of her madness so uh I really, really liked that arc in this book. Yeah, it was really unexpected too, because at the start, uh, it felt like those characters were just sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of like flies on the wall. Like we just need someone from this point of view to watch the more important things happen. And then he becomes like really important to the plot. And I like that, that he's, um, because my understanding of the story is that at that point, Tilda doesn't know that there is a book in the chest she can't get close enough to actually like see inside it or open the book and read it and little paul keeps telling us like i know how to read i know how to read and it's like oh sure little paul yeah so i bet you do turns out no he does know how to read uh, and he doesn't have this sort of like madness of the nobility where he's like immune to this like lust for power and he can actually open the chest and like read the book it's almost like a freedom from greed. Yeah. Or it's like all the other characters are affected by some kind of greed. Even the one that even the ones that say that they're here to liberate, there's like a greed of like wanting to do things their way. Yeah. And uh little Paul is the only one who's really free of that. He's just like, I'd like some apples. Yeah. Because I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, you're right too that I really like how respectful everyone is of him like if this was game of thrones if uh george r R. martin was writing this book it would not go well for little paul (laughs) agreed i mean he did get he did get beaten up uh in the first volume because he screwed up their um reward from the the lord or whatever but well i think that was almost an act of self-defense like they were doing that so that the whole lot of them wouldn't get punished right right Right. No, I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, um, actually, I just, uh, I, I feel like for me, the, the second volume really pivots around the magic box and what's inside of it. So I feel like that's what's insane. in the box. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> we in all the wanted box? to know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I see, this is something that I found uh, frustrating reading the second volume because they had this big explosion when they find the box and then cut to battlefield and queen like opens up her closet and the magic box is there. And I looks like it heals her wounds. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, so it's just like a magic wound healing box, I guess. And then later it's like with 
the revelation with little Paul is like, oh no, no, there's a magic book inside and the magic book uh, will kill royalty. And so you're, you've got these blotchy patches on your skin and you're feeling sick because of this book. And like, if you renounce your title as queen, like you will be healed and like the world can be whole again, you know, um, which is like, I mean, metaphorically very, like I'm on board with it metaphorically, but like in practice, I'm just like, wait, what? Like, it's a book that can heal you sometimes, but it will kill you also. And it's, if you think you're a king, it'll kill you. I, I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was a kind of a weird, flimsy, magical curse. It, it's treated almost like, I want to say the word of God, but almost like a, a foundational truth of humanity, right? Which has, has some power equivalency to a word of God, right? And uh, I think it's an, it's an interesting concept, right? Because it, it feels like something that should be real, you know, like this foundational truth that a lot of us spend our lives like really searching for, you know, like, what is it all for? And what does it all mean? And it's like, it's, it's treated like the answer. And I did like that, but it was not very well explained within the canon. Like, where did it come from? Who, who made this? When was the mm, golden age? Yeah. Why did the golden age end? who who entombed this book what what did the the what did Tilda's dad really have to do with it like there's a lot of unanswered questions that I think I agree with you Hannah from what you said earlier like I expected the resolution to those questions to be a little bit more fantastical and gripping and maybe that's what's I'm feeling is missing that it's like the word of God is like ah be nice to each other uh, at at yeah. the end of the day, like try not being so greedy, you know. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe that's a little bit reductive, but I don't know. That's kind of exactly what I gathered from it. And then once I realized that, I was like, oh, I see where this is going. Like, yeah, I agree with it, but like, is it making the most um, riveting, gripping storyline? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, Moses descends from Mount Sinai, <laughs> and on his tablets it says, "Don't be a dick." <laughs> I guess for me like one of the most interesting parts of the the book the first volume was just like the mystery of the magical element in addition to the sort of like faux historical fiction and so that I I was so excited to like what what are we going to be introduced to like the options are seemingly endless like why is this book so powerful and for it to just end up kind of being like a, uh, yeah, like you said, almost like a Bible, like the word of God. I was just, oh, okay. <laughs> like, why is it magical? Why is it burning the, the royalty's bodies? Like, I don't know. Like, it's it, it could have been explained or there could have been, I feel like there could have been more there. Um, like more, more history, throw in, mm. throw in a sorcerer or something you know it, it feels it like an allegory that I'm just not getting mm. that's what yeah, it that's... feels like it feels like there's some layer to this where if I'd understood what it was really referencing maybe it would be a lot more profound and I'm just not picking up on it I, I mean that... it is like a translated book so maybe there's something that we're missing based off of that but yeah I, I think yeah. the allegory is sort of like the when there were peasant uprisings or like when people suggested that maybe we don't need to have a nobility in the middle ages it often either 
like they often used uh like religion to justify that to say like well there weren't there weren't any kings and queens in the garden of eden why why is it like the expectation that we have to have those or like and i think the classical connection is really strong too like they didn't really do anything with that like in the first volume they find this book in the ruins of what looks like a classical civilization and i feel like that's a missed opportunity to sort of like tie it to like to give this world deeper roots to say okay well this isn't this story doesn't take place in our world we don't know the history of this world like what was the society that this golden age was written about in the first place was there a golden age like how did that classical civilization end did it end because they got kings and queens we find it in the ruins of a city maybe that's a clue but like we never we never get any of that information i think there was plenty of opportunity to put that kind of thing in this book because we like they read passages and they often repeat the passage that they've read which is like i don't think the words are profound enough that you need to repeat them i think maybe this would have been a chance to like read a different part of the book and find out some more backstory like give us some context but we we don't get that there's also something to be said about how it ends where it, it kind of ends implying that the revolution worked and the golden age is now upon us again because of the words in this book. And I think that's something else that is kind of missing that makes that would make this feel more profound and satisfying would be seeing that golden age, mm. uh, seeing yeah. how the people are transformed and how the way they relate to each other is transformed bringing back the women in the forest, bringing back all these people that we were becoming really interested in and seeing how their, yeah, how their lives are actually transformed by this book. But instead we kind of get like the ruins of the castle. I think that's kind of how it ends. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Like yeah, well, yeah, royalty yeah, is over. The ruins of the castle and the queen sacrificed her life in order to bring about the golden age. Is this supposed it to does. be like a Marie Antoinette allegory? Like, is this like, because it is French in origin, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're French, you can't have the golden age and still have monarchs. Yeah. But like, um, I mean, this is the thing, like, I feel like I, I struggle with this a little bit because like, you know, at, at its core, like this is a book that's saying it's bad to have kings. We need equality for all people of all classes. And I'm like, hey, that's a great message. I'm on board with that. But then like the execution is just like, because the magic book it's the right thing to do and you're like yeah but like realistically you've got a king like how do you actually deal with like i know it's it's sort of like um it's like telling you what the problem is but it's not proposing like a solution and i don't know maybe this is just like where i'm at right now but it's just like i yeah yeah for the last the last uh two and a half three years I've been just really marinating in like all the problems and like I think what I recognize right now is that like now you need to figure out solutions it's like okay I see yes it's bad to have a king I agree I'm on board with that so what do we do about it and like we need something more than just a magic book like we need like a roadmap of like this is how society should be structured like throw me propose something to me propose me like show me your utopia like how is this better world going to look like i'm more interested to see what a better world is going to look like and i think if people see like i don't know i think if the, if the author's intent is to 
um, get people to question authoritarianism and be more into egalitarianism, like you need to sort of propose uh, a model, you need to model it. You need to be like, here is a society where people are equal. And then people can look at that and go like, that seems pretty cool. Like maybe we could borrow some of those ideas for our own world instead of just like kings are bad. Like, yeah, yeah, kings are bad, but now what? That's really interesting what you've just said, though, like the authorial intent was, well, I mean, we can discuss this, like, was the authorial intent getting people to question authoritarianism? Uh, And it's really interesting if you think about that in the context of how this work was rendered, right? You know, we we discuss, uh, we discussed a lot in book one, how uh, romantic everything seems about this world, right? You know, like it, it feels very classical in terms of a historical kind of fiction. You know, it feels like a place that we know. It feels like medieval Europe. Uh, and a lot of these things that people love about these stories are contained in this book. And then by the end, we're saying like, no, actually, probably we shouldn't romanticize this. Hmm. Was that the hmm. Was that the point that it's like, actually, the happiness that we would feel would be not trying to return to the past, but trying to create something new. So it's interesting. Yeah, like I I don't actually know if authorial intent is clear, but it it, it would be interesting to discuss, I think. And I I feel like we get some of that in the first volume where we see this village of the women. And that's kind of a model of like, here's another way to have a society, which is I think why it's such a loss to for them to be totally absent from this book. And to just um, have like a one line of like, oh, I failed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, maybe in your story, you want to have it fail for whatever reason, but like, I want to see, okay, what didn't work in that society? If it failed, why? Like, what are the, if we're going to build this golden age, we need to know, like, what are the pitfalls? What are the potential hazards along the way? Like, what do we not want to do the next time? And we don't get that. Yeah, that's a good point, Jonathan. It seems like a real missed opportunity. I was having that exact same thought as you're just before you started talking about, yeah, the women in the forest being almost an exact model of what I would imagine that sort of society to look like. So it is really interesting, or I guess sad that they didn't include that in the ending of the the book. Or like, what if... um... Like we don't really see much of the the army of the revolutionaries. Like maybe they structure their army differently than the the monarchs do. Maybe they have a different way of organizing their army as a kind of a model of like how they organize society. Like I was, um, I listened to a podcast once that was about the Spanish Civil War and the the left wing side in that war had like, uh, a, a style of organizing their army that is not like anything I've ever heard before where they would like it was all like partisans like small factions of partisans and, but they would organize themselves by like voting on who their leader was like they didn't have a, a military structure where like the general is just the general and you have to deal with that like no the people below the general get to decide how long that general keeps their job and like that's a different way to organize a society and, and like if these revolutionaries are serious about their golden age, like what are they doing to actually do it? Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think it's it's really 
interesting how the the society of the women in the forest and also this revolution were two elements that felt very fresh in a medieval fantasy context and both of them kind of fizzled out by book two mm-hmm. and that's that's really frustrating <laughs> yeah and they they feel fresh but they have like a basis enough of a basis in reality that you could really like dig into the history and like pull out some pieces and like build something really interesting yeah i mean uh one of the scenes in book two that stood out um to me was the on the battlefield they have the soldiers who basically decide like they're not paying us enough for this or they're not paying us so we're out of here and we're going to burn down the their parapet and we're going to leave and i mean i'm I'm sure stuff like that happened a lot more in medieval battles than they probably want to talk about in the history books. But like, again, that feels like a really interesting thread because like often we see these narratives of like, well, why is this soldier here? Well, he's there for King and country. He's there to defend the, this nation that he truly believes. No, he's just there for a paycheck. And like when the money runs out, he's gone. Right. It's like, yeah, and like they didn't really have like nationalism the way we would recognize it in the middle ages. Right. You, you, you didn't fight for your King necessarily. You fought for like whoever was your landowner and then they fought for the King. So you don't even really care who the King is. Yeah. And like, I, again, I feel like I thought that was a really interesting scene. And again, it sort of, that seems like an interesting thread that really didn't get pulled on where it's just like, well, what does, what, what are we even doing here? If it's just like, you're paying these guys to fight these other guys who are also getting paid. So like, you know, like what is going on here? Like everyone's just getting paid to fight each other because these two people want to decide who gets to be King. Like, well, I mean, that's accurate. That's <laughs> yeah, I know, accurate. but like, it's like, like, again, if you really break that down, like that really says something interesting and that really points out like why the women in the forest had the right idea of just like, no, like this is crap. Like we don't need kings. This is just bad. They just pay people to kill each other for stupid, petty reasons. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, should we talk about the art? Because the art is oh. on par. Yeah. The art is is worth worth looking through this book for for sure. <laughs> yeah, fantastic again. There are a lot of fight scenes in this one, which are very hard to draw. And so that was really fun. It's just eye candy, in my opinion. This whole yeah. Is- and I, I had a quip earlier about the horses, but legit, like really nice horses in this book. <laughs> oh yeah. And All really the nice. characters are unique and uh, expressive. Yeah, and they change too. Like the way Tilda is drawn in this book is so different from how she was drawn in the first book, and then she changes again by the end of the book. Yeah, that's but like she's still very recognizably the same person. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, and the colors too, like just beautiful, beautiful use of color. Yeah, the, visually, I have no complaints. This is just like a beautiful book, and just some of the some of the big spreads, you know, like just these big like crowd scenes and stuff, like really, really beautiful. I mean, we already talked about this in the first episode. I still found the repeating characters in a single scene a little bit distracting, but- There was a lot more of that in this volume than the first volume, I think too. Mm -hmm. And I think from an experimental perspective, I don't think that technique was used to great effect. Like yeah. the moments that they chose to portray in those multi-scene panels, let's say, multi-character panels. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, but it would just be like slowly moving across the room. But like 
the right. the moments that were chosen to illustrate were not individually revealing mm, right yeah yeah that's a good that's a good point because like i've seen that um technique used in like superhero comics and it's like oh well spider-man's he's gonna you know, punch this bad guy and then he's gonna grab the person and then he's going to do that and so like the artist draws the significant actions of the scene because they happen so fast you're like oh, okay i get it but like yeah when it's just like what happened in the scene oh she walked across the room but we have 15 versions of her you know step by step across the room it's like yeah or you could have just had the character standing in the room and they would have <laughs> had the same effect right yeah what is what is the the thing that you can't convey that uses this technique to resolve and it's like i don't once again like authorial intent is unclear mm. and so the effect is a little bit lost i mean i think if i remember correctly i think the artist for this um was an animator mm -hmm. um and so i feel like this step by step is a little bit of just the animation thought process like you know, like, oh, the character's moving across the room. We've got to have multiple instances of the character in motion. Like, yeah, that would be satisfying to an animator. I can see that. Yeah. Like, it's, you, you can't just have Tilda standing in this room drinking out of a wine glass. You've got to show her picking up the wine glass and drinking and putting it down and walking to the other side of the room where people wouldn't understand what was happening in the scene. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that it's most effective in the full page spreads where you have, you can tell that the character is going through multiple different, like different motions or like traveling over a distance. Mm. Um, I really appreciate that. I think it's, uh, maybe I'm just excited, more so excited about experimental comic techniques, but I think it, it's, I, I think it's really effective and interesting in those I, scenarios. I I think those are the more effective scenes too, though. Like they had a few where it would be like a big vista and you'd have maybe the two characters on horseback and they're progressing from one side of the scene to the other side of the scene. And as they progress, they get bigger maybe. And then you have the speech balloons following them. And so it's like, you get that sense of their ongoing dialogue as they journey, but it's like, it is one big comic panel. It's one big spread. I think that was effective because you're watching the characters move through time and space in a static environment. Um, and that I'm like, when it's that big, when it's like, hey, we're traveling to the castle. Beginning of this, they're in the woods. By the end of it, they've reached the castle door. I'm like, I'm on board for that. It's more like the, yeah, the more insignificant, like, she walked across the room it's like yeah did we need to see that like it, it... i don't i don't know if i would describe it as insignificant it's funny because like i love manga right as we mm. know about me uh and <laughs> i a lot of what manga does is these like micro moments and like a real emphasis on like subtle expression mm. so it's like if we had seen more of that emphasis on subtle expressions that were happening throughout that scene that would have been okay mm. but i do want to go back because i agree with both of you uh where i think when they were traveling across large vistas that was a great use of this technique and that was to great effect because what it reminded me of is, as I mentioned, like I don't love military battle scenes, but one of the things, one of the reasons I think I don't love them is that in comics, especially I find them 
really difficult to parse when you have individual panels describing various locations of uh, scenes on the battlefield, things that are happening maybe concurrently or close in time. Mm. From a battle perspective, it's very difficult to tell where things are in relation to each other and how these things relate to each other. So having a large vista where you can kind of see everything at once, it's like, okay, so there's a skirmish happening over here and here's the castle wall, whereas, you know, people are trying to go up and they're being defended. And then like in the back, there are reinforcements that are shooting arrows. Like you can see all of that at once and very clearly understand how all of these elements of the battle relate to each other. And then you layer on the characters who are moving through this. And so you understand what they're encountering and uh, the significance of them moving through this area. Uh, so that that worked really, really well for me. And Hannah, I agree with you 100%. Like from an experimental technique, I'm excited about what this can do. And sometimes like that's just the nature of experimentation. Some of them are going to work and some of them are not. And it's really interesting to piece apart like what is and is not. The the yeah the battlefield this. scenes were those were, those worked really well definitely. Um, I I see what you mean too with like a character picking up a glass and putting it back down in one panel. I think what's really important with comics is like showing the passage of time through breaks um and I think you can use the panel breaks as beats and that I think would have been more effective in terms of like maybe the character taking a pause after after taking a sip or something like that it that helps sell it and so just to have it smushed in one panel kind of like you just read it all at once and it doesn't seem as like as much of a an important moment um it doesn't convey like thought or time passing in the yeah, same it way. doesn't show you what's important about those actions if those little actions are character revealing then you want to focus on those little actions like you want to do like i feel like a manga artist would have, have like a close-up of tilda picking up her glass and then a close-up of her taking a sip and then a maybe a long shot so we can see the whole room and then another close-up of her face or like that's less work to draw, but like more impactful story-wise, because you can see like though you're focusing on those little little actions that if you're gonna draw this happening, I assume those must be important. I, I appreciate getting the chance to talk to you all about this because uh, as we know, there isn't a lot of comics academia happening. And so it's it's rare to have these opportunities to really dissect the mechanics of it. Like, I think as a lot mm. of us know, if you grew up reading comics, a lot of it becomes intuitive. And so there's, there's a little bit like Scott McCloud's understanding comics where we get this terminology of moment by moment and the function of the panel breaks and how you can accelerate or, or relax time. But it's, it's rare to have the opportunity to really dissect it and to see how each of us take from this impression and this application of technique. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the academia around comics is more writing-based rather than art-based. Mm -hmm. or, or either it's like illustrative-based, not like the art mechanics of it. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I think, a harder thing to get uh, like a university program put together with qualified professionals is like, okay, who knows how to pace out a page? 
Yeah. <laughs> like not, not someone from the writing department, not right. someone from the fine arts department. Right. And right. even among experts, you know, like you can, you can take a look at a page and see like, I really like the panel composition here or something's kind of wonky with the panel flow, but we still don't have the language as a community to really dissect mm -hmm. the mechanics of it. Yeah. 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 And we're like, we, we still use like film terminology for a lot of these things, just because like you need a word that people will understand and like film has this history of academia and like building language to describe things. We just like import all of theirs, like camera angle and point of view. There's no camera. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, and yet, you know, like uh, I think comics often do more than like people sometimes will dismiss comics as just, they're just storyboards. They're just storyboards uh -huh. for scripts. And it's like, no, nah, there's more going on there. If, if you've got someone who's just giving you a storyboard of the script, you're not getting a good comic. Like, uh -huh. For there's, sure. There's something extra needed. There are there's overlap for sure, but there's going to be things where that doesn't work anymore. Um, I was thinking a lot about because I always teach the panel transitions to my students at Langara, and uh, I was thinking about the what's being employed here, and it's a little bit of like an action to action, but within a single panel. So you're not using the panels to divide the actions. The, the room is static and then the character is taking individual actions that move, progress through the, the scene. Um, but then it's maybe a little bit aspect to aspect in the sense mm. of just like where they are in the scene and what we're focusing on. Like it's almost kind of blending those two things. Um, you really need a word for this specific phenomenon of like <laughs> drawing a character in multiple moments in a single panel. I agree. We need a word. I don't have I mean, one. <laughs> I, no, let, uh, I may, I'll have to dig through my making comics. Maybe Scott McCloud's got something in there. I don't think he does. I no, think this I is, don't think it's, Japanese book. it's newer. This right. is the thing. Like this is a fairly new technique that we're seeing mm. pop up now. And I think uh, I, I touched on this last time. It's like, as a community, we're still as a community of comics creatives, we're still experimenting with this technique to see where it works and where it doesn't. Mm. Uh, but having a word to describe what the technique is uh, would be neat. I mean, oh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is going to bug me now because I feel like it's something I've seen. I've seen this employed in like comics in the oh, city, yeah. right? So like yeah, it's yeah, I've seen it around multiple and, times. Yet, and yet, yeah, we haven't really like got a word for it and it's it's existed and been employed to varying degrees of success for like a long time. Um, yeah. Oh man. It's up to us. <laughs> we it wouldn't be it the out. first time we invented a word on trade readers. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little itch in the back of my brain now. <laughs> what we should do at some point when we get enough of these words is like write a little dictionary and publish it as a zine. Comics terminology <laughs> by the trade readers. There we go. I have to go back and listen to 86 episodes to find them all, though. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, uh, I think we need to do final thoughts. Any final thoughts? Final thoughts for me is it's worth the read. I'm tempted to say it's worth the purchase just to have the art and be able to look at the art in your home whenever you want. But um, if that doesn't really get you going, I definitely take it rent it from the borrow from the library um yeah the story the, the end of the, the book two not doesn't have a very satisfying ending in my opinion 
I agree I, with that. Uh, I, I'm glad I read it because again, like it had some really interesting techniques employed that I'm really glad I got a chance to see and think about. Uh, the plot didn't stick the landing for me. And also the, the use of techniques made it challenging to recommend because I think for, for a novice reader, it would be difficult to parse sometimes. Yeah, I think the book one was great. I would always recommend book one. Book one needed an ending and this is the ending. So it's worth it to have, but uh, I definitely wouldn't recommend book two on its own. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about this um, while you guys were talking. And so, I mean, I think the art is absolutely beautiful. And I actually would say, I think this would be a good tween reader like i think like a 12 year old to a 14 year old would really like this book and i think they would uh so i'm trying to i don't want to be like i don't want to malign young people but just like i feel like the sim the more the simplicity of like kings are bad and we need to just have a better society would resonate better with a younger person where I'm just like too old and grizzled and I'm- You already know kings are bad. You don't need to be told. Yeah, I'm like, oh, but how, how have we tried so many times? How do we make it? <laughs> it's like, it's a little bit, I'm, I'm too far gone. So I think like a young idealistic person could read this and they would, years later, they'll be like, oh man, like I just remember I read this book, The Golden Age, and I just always wanted to make the world a better place from reading that, you know? That's a good it point. Be, I could see it, that, yeah. Yeah, it'd be a really good teaching tool. It would be good, I feel like, to to teach in like maybe a lit class in high school or sure. something yeah. where, you know, you can appreciate and have a discussion about the, you know, the more challenging parts of the art, but then also like have meaningful conversations about how it relates to society. Yeah. Yeah, pair it with some, uh, some medieval history. Yeah. As a comparison point. Yeah, there we go. I like it. Agreed. Okay, uh, do we have shout outs? I'm going to shout out my, uh, my, my friend Wei Li uh, completed his short film, Tehura, T-E-H-U-R-A. Um, and it is going to be screened at the Tribeca Film Festival. Oh, congrats, uh, Wei. Yeah, and he's going to be interviewed, I think actually in person at the Tribeca Film Festival about his film. So uh, I wish him all the success. Uh, maybe in the future, if I record from his... Uh, desk again there'll be more awards uh blocking my view of the camera so <laughs> that's wonderful uh i'm jam you can find my work at uh jamminess.com or patreon.com slash jam and uh i want to uh shout out a fellow webcomics veteran who has just launched their new comic uh their name is ek weaver and their new comic is called Shot and Chaser. You can find it at tjandamal.com slash sac. They just released the prologue, which is 10 pages. And I'm so, so excited about this work. Uh, if you want to see someone who is an absolute pro at moment-to-moment uh, -moment panel transitions and really excels at character interaction, excels at character expression, excels at lettering. This is going to be one to watch. It's going to be, it's going to be real good. I, I have, I've only read 10 pages and I'm already, I'm like, mandatory read. Love it. 
Uh, all right, I'm going to shout out uh, a book that I haven't finished reading yet, but um, it's about a real revolution. Uh, it's called Avengers of the New World, and it's about the Haitian Revolution, which is really fascinating and not a revolution I know nearly enough about. Uh, it seems like it's, uh, I, it, I feel like it kind of gets lumped in with the French Revolution because it happens concurrent and there was lots of back and forth but it's really it's its own thing and like super important uh to the history of the world uh and had like a, a effect on the french revolution in return um it's by laurent dubois all right um i have been reading a lot of like retellings of greek myths lately and um, not not a graphic novel, but I just finished Circe by Madeline Miller, and I would recommend it if you guys are like into that kind of thing. Thank you so much for bringing us this book. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much for having me. It was so much fun. Uh, our next book is going to be Yotsuba, Volume One and Two by Kiyohiko Azuma. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Mm -hmm.